Thanks for listening to The Wild Women Who Write, Kathy Nichols, Kim Connery, Elizabeth Jones, Kat Filer, and Gabby Anderson. This evening, we're delighted to have author Leslie Kane as our guest. Her stories have found their way into literary journals and anthologies, and her new book, Secrets in the Mirror, just advanced to the Chanticleer semifinals in the highly competitive and prestigious Somerset Literary Competition. She is an American Fiction Awards finalist, reader's favorite five-star, just to name a few. Leslie, welcome. Glad to be here. How long have you been writing, and what drives your writing? Oh, my goodness. I've been writing since I could hold a pencil, I guess, since I was about four. I taught myself to read by the time I was four. It was everything. It was from poems to plays to ideas to little stories uh, to secret plans and everything in between. What point did you finally become serious about being published? In various aspects of my career, I was published in things like uh, professional articles and uh, technical articles and um, marketing, which, of course, marketing is fiction. (laughs) But um, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I seriously started going back to fiction after many career choices where I did nonfiction, so to speak. And so I was surprised when I began fiction. I, I wasn't sure I could do it. I, I certainly wasn't sure that I could do dialogue well. That actually turned out to be one of my better skills, so I'm told. And, and I, um, I enjoy it, and I think probably uh, the most rewarding thing for me, well, there's two very rewarding things. First of all, the themes that I, cho- I choose are always psychological, and they're invariably focused on addressing issues that perhaps are not treated effectively or well enough in society. So there are messages there. But what I really enjoy is being uh, connected with my characters. They become my best friend, and sometimes they become my nagging, pestering friends to tell me that I'm missing something that I'm not getting right, uh, and no, the plot doesn't go this way, it goes the other way. And I enjoy that very much. And it all starts out with doing very deep character interviews that can take more than a week and having a dialogue with my characters. And I love that. It's, It's exciting. It's like I have new friends. It sounds like your uh, there's two types of authors, and there are various names for this in terms of writing style. Some people call them plotters, call themselves plotters, and some people call themselves pantsters. And which are you? I firmly believe that you cannot be 100% of either. And pardon me, I have a cold, so I'm going to be froggy voice. You know, you can do a a rough outline of what you think that the plot is going to be. And before you even do that, you should do the deep interview with your character because you're going to put that character into what you think 
the plot is, but the character is going to have their own responses. And you will only be able to perceive those responses if you deeply understand your character. And um, once you do that, your character has responses and reactions to the plot points that will often take the story in a different direction or at least uh, give you some insights into the deep dimensions of how that character behaves, their emotions, their feelings. So I don't think you can ever be both uh, or 100% of either. So I start out with a, an outline, and then my characters often have different ideas. Very good. Who or what has been most helpful to you in your writing? Donald Moss. His, his books, his workshops have helped me more than anything else. I come from a dysfunctional childhood where I got very good at burying my feelings. And Donald Moss talks about the emotional craft of fiction, that what you, the objective of, the, of your fiction is that you want your reader to feel the same things that your character is feeling to the depth and extent of what they're feeling, why they're feeling, what is the ideological basis of those feelings, how far back are those grains of, of feelings that now come to the surface. He has helped me as a person and me as a writer. And then, of course, you read all kinds of books that you know, move you in, in one way or another. Fiction, you know, we all love Toni Morrison and many others, Wally Lamb, Kruger. We are collectively wild women. And um, can you share a little bit about your wild side with us? Oh, if I told you everything, I'd have to kill you. But <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, a dysfunctional family background. And um, I ran away from my guardian across country when I was 15. And I just made my own way. That was, you know, I was midway through my senior year or so. And, you know, a lot of other adventures and misadventures that, but sharing that with the public will have to wait until I get a pen name. Yeah, I've had a lot of adventures. And I, I think the bottom line is that I always bucked authority. I was probably the teacher's pain in the ass. Have you talked with some of those uh, teachers subsequent to publishing a book? No, no, I haven't. Your debut novel, Secrets in the Mirror, was published in September. Uh, was there a particular thing that inspired you inspired you to write that story? Yes, uh, there were two things. Uh, first of all, I know someone who has two daughters that were always very close growing up. They're only a couple of years apart in age. And then something strange started happening in their early 20s, late teens, early 20s. The older sister started telling the younger sister where her life decisions were all wrong and uh, demeaning her life decisions and basically manipulating her and even gaslighting. And that was very hurtful to the younger daughter. And it got so bad, she had to break away 
from her sister, the one that she'd always been very close to. And it was so hurtful, not only for uh, the younger sister, but for her parent who had to go to therapy. And um, the therapist read some of the older sister's communications and said, classic narcissist. So I started thinking about that, how painful and difficult it is to break away from a narcissist when it's part of your family and you're very close, but you have to make the decision to save yourself. There is a national um, political figure who um, all his communications and his behavior have been analyzed by professionals and the symptomatic behavior and communications are just right there in the DSM the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of of Mental Health Disorders. And it's very clear that he exhibits all the symptoms of malignant narcissistic personality disorder that has hurt his family and have hurt the nation. So those two influences combined made me start asking the question of, at one, at one point, do victims have to decide that they have to break away from the abuser? And how difficult is that? And uh, I made it more complicated by having it be identical twins in a dysfunctional family where the father and his father before him was also dysfunctional. So it's a multi-generational cascade. Yes, and I thought it was very interesting that your twins are something called mirror twins. Can you explain that to us a bit? Yes, mirror twins is, first of all, a physical aspect. So, for example, if one twin has a cowlick in the right crown, the other twin is going to have the same cowlick in the left crown. And then when... Uh, one twin looks into the, the mirror, they literally completely see the exact picture of their twin because the mirror reverses things. And then it gets a little more complicated in this book because their personalities are very different, are reverse of each other. And then there's a physical anomaly of having one twin has his organs reversed, which is rare, but it occurs. So the metaphor of having um, uh, reverse personalities, I thought was helpful, as well as the metaphor of uh, the dysfunction mirroring throughout generations. Yeah, this whole concept of mirroring is really interesting, um, not just between your two characters, but also, you know, just when you're creating a character that you find that their inner landscape and their outer landscape are mirrors of each other. So when you were creating these twins, did you find yourself also having to construct mirroring realities for both of them, depending on who you were writing, like just the way they interact with their surroundings um, actually changes depending on who the viewpoint character is between those two twins? Well, that's an interesting question. Thank you. (laughs) The bulk of the book is written in third person limited, Uh, third person uh, close in on the main character 
who is Gavin the Good Twin. However, there are two breakout chapters at the beginning of the book and two at the end of the book where each twin takes over a first person POV chapter. So you get very deep into the mind of each of the twins in taking turns. Gavin is good and unsure of himself because he's been bullied and abused by his father and by his uh, twin. He has the best of intention and he's a really good person, but he's unsure of himself to try and have belief in his own self. Whereas Devin, the devious twin, he is very, very sure of himself, even though it's all hollow and fake because he's faking it. And he, his father has spotted him from, from a very early age and decided that he's the winner, he's the best, and that his wimpy loser Gavin twin has to take care of the worst instincts of devious Devin. But the father has not shown Devin what it takes to be a winner, what it takes to be best. You just fake it until, you know, everyone believes it which is, I didn't realize it at the time when I started writing it. I totally didn't realize it. That national political figure, his father did the same thing. I don't know. Did, did uh, fiction meet reality or, or vice versa? I have no idea. I noticed the changing POVs, and it was really interesting to me because uh, I don't know, and I'd like to ask you, was this your intention when you put us in Devin's head, we understand what drives him. And it's important when we write an evil character to make sure that we understand where they're coming from because they don't mean to be evil. They just are lacking in some way. And it's a very interesting way of doing that. Yes, that was very important to me because you need to understand the fears that are driving Devin. I mean, the greatest, almost life and death fear of a nice narcissist is being found out that he's fake, that he's a fraud. And it can drive panic. It can drive aggression, defending against that. They, they can't be found out to be a fraud. And to get inside the evil person, to know what's driving them. Uh, they don't set out to be evil. Kathy had a question. Seeing what you said about they don't mean to be evil, they're just kind of being themselves. And, and that to me is like that political figure shared the story that we've heard a million times of the scorpion hitching a ride on the frog's back. And he's like, why did you sting me? Because I'm a scorpion. So do you think that people, narcissists, do you think they are self-aware enough to know that they're faking it? Or I would imagine that could vary. I just, I don't know. If by definition, do they not know they're faking it? They're just afraid of being challenged? I have, um, I, I've not, in my psychology background, I've not treated a narcissist personally. So um, I've relied a lot on reading case studies and so forth. And for the most part, those case studies indicate that when 
the narcissist is on and is in charge, uh, they will know that, or they will firmly believe that they are the winner, they're the best, they know everything. But then there are triggers, uh, usually when that person is alone or in dreams or sleeping or when they're challenged, that fear of being discovered comes forward. But it isn't there all the time. It isn't there all the time. They play the role and they firmly believe that they are the best, they're in charge. You've hit on an awful lot of this already, but were there some difficulties that your main characters faced that you have not brought up? You know, the the main character in the sequel will evidence the um, challenges that were planted deep within him as a child that he has not addressed. There were slight little hints of lack of uh, self-regard, lack of self-esteem, lack of certainty about his own uh, talents, but they weren't explored uh, completely. The sequel will do that. The combination of his childhood, which was a life of, of being bullied and abused, combination of that, which is the complexity, and then the trauma at the end of the book, which we aren't going to talk about. Those two things put together make complex PTSD. So PTSD in and of itself is usually uh, the product of a particular trauma that could be just one time or maybe, you know, in battle, it's, it's kind of all lumped together. But when it comes from a lifetime of childhood, that changes the dimension and adds to um, PTSD, uh, adds like about three or four different uh, symptoms that don't exist in normal PTSD. So that's what Gavin will have to deal with in the sequel, and it doesn't go very well. And his friends will have to pull him back. I've got a quick question. Their names, Gavin and Devin, any relation there to godly and devilish by any chance? I know it's it's goody Gavin, which Devin always teases Gavin with goody Gavin. And then um, Gavin has one crack at Devin that says, all right, devious Devin. So, yes, that was to help. I don't know if it was I had thought about it before or whether I thought about it when someone said, well, how is your reader going to keep them straight? And so I introduced the goody Gavin and devious Devin. Do you have a favorite line or a couple lines in the books? I know I have about six. <laughs> well, I think one of the um, one of the things that keep coming back to me is a line, and I'm not going to probably not going to get the quote exactly here, where he is told by his high school counselor, who sticks with him 
the entire 11 years of uh, the, the, the book, his counselor is saying, I know you have to save your twin, but you can't save anyone until you save yourself. And then there's another line where certain family members are no longer around. And Gavin says to his counselor, so with half the family gone, does the dysfunction go down by half? And his counselor says, the ghost of past dysfunction remains. There is one paragraph or one scene. Every time I try to read it, I cry. <laughs> and that is a, an epiphany scene where Gavin finally realizes that it isn't just him or his brother or his father or his family. It's generations and that he's got to break that chain of gen multi-generational dysfunction. And I'm not going to read it because I'll, I'll cry. Fair enough, because I cried too. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Kathy had a question. I don't know if you have a name for it, the work that you're, the book that you're working on. And we want to talk just a little bit about that before we wrap it up. But I thought I might steal the ghost of past dysfunctions. Uh, if you don't use it, <laughs> or we'll throw it out there. It's a great title for a book. How about Shattered Mirror? Oh, I like that even better. So I can have the ghost of past dysfunctions if I want it. Sure. <laughs> well, the ghost of past dysfunction will haunt Gavin all during the sequel, and he will nearly succumb. When do you think your next book, is it finished? Or are you in the editing? What process are you? Um, I'm probably about two thirds of the way through the, the first draft. Um, I don't anticipate it will be published until after the first of the year, 2024. I will choose the, I, I will use the same press, Atmosphere Press. Uh, did a good job for me. Um, I have confidence in them as long as Cameron Finch still stays around with Atmosphere because Cammy was my, my hero, my champion, my advocate. And so I'll give a shout out to Cammy Finch. Well, Leslie, we have enjoyed having you as a guest and we imagine that our listeners and readers are at this very moment clicking buy online. <laughs> Okay. Um, and they'll be looking for your next book. So I advise readers and listeners to please follow and like you on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads, and um, even follow your author page on Amazon so that they can stay abreast of all the rest of your work and wherever else they can find things. And also, I hope that every reader doesn't forget to leave a review. Oh, yes. Um, that's a constant struggle, isn't it? <laughs> it's better than money sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, thank you, Wild Women, very much. I appreciate the discussion. Yeah. And Kat, good luck with your book. Thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, keep writing and stay wild.